Well, we've come to the end of our series through the book of Nehemiah, which tells the story of the people of God rebuilding the city of God. Last week, the people dedicated the walls of Jerusalem to the Lord, and then they all lived happily ever after, right? Not quite. Unfortunately, not. Some think the book of Nehemiah actually ends tragically. I'm not so sure about that, uh, but at the very least, Nehemiah ends with a question mark. To begin, let's make sure we understand all that God has done for his people at this point in the story. Back when the Babylonians first took uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem into exile, the prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles. They were instructed to build houses and plant gardens, to marry and have children, and to seek the welfare of Babylon. And then the Lord makes a promise. He thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, bring you back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God says to the people, yes, you are going into exile, but one day you will call upon me and I will hear you and I will gather you up and I will restore you and I will reestablish the city of Jerusalem. And at this point in the book of Nehemiah, God has accomplished all of these things. God has fulfilled all of these promises. The exile is officially over. The city and her people are restored and reformed. That is the the broader backdrop to Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, let's think back to a couple weeks ago, Nehemiah chapter 10, where the citizens of Jerusalem recommit themselves to the law of God. They make three promises. Number one, they promise not to intermarry with pagan nations. Number two, They promised to observe the Sabbath. And number three, they promised to provide everything necessary for the proper worship of God. But as we will see, chapter 13 shows the people breaking each of these three promises. You see, in the Old Testament, pretty much every time a covenant is made, the people immediately fall into sin. We see this with Adam and Eve, we see this with Noah and his sons. We see it with Abraham and Hagar. We see this at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. We see this with Nadab and Abihu. We see this with King David. And we see it here in the book of Nehemiah. Time after time, the people of God break the covenant pretty much as soon as they make it. Sometimes in the very next chapter. So again, the people have promised not to intermarry. They have promised to observe the Sabbath. And they have promised to provide everything necessary for the proper worship of God. And here in chapter 13, they break those promises in reverse order. They neglect the house of God, they fail to observe the Sabbath, and they begin to intermarry with those who do not worship the God of Israel. At this point, Nehemiah has been appointed governor of the region surrounding Jerusalem. But in verse 6, we learn that Nehemiah is away on business. He's back in the Persian capital visiting the king. 
In the book of Exodus, while Moses is away, meeting with God on Mount Sinai, he leaves Aaron in charge. Aaron was the high priest. And while Moses is gone, under the leadership of Aaron, the people break the covenant. Well, the same thing happens here. While Nehemiah is meeting with the king, he leaves Eliashib in charge. Eliashib was the high priest, and while Nehemiah is gone, under the leadership of Eliashib, the people break the covenant. Verse 4. Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were by commandment to the Levi- which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So we know from previous chapters that Tobiah is the arch enemy of Nehemiah. Tobiah has resisted and undermined Nehemiah at every turn. And now Tobiah has taken to desecrating the temple. The high priest gives Tobiah a storage room in the temple, which is obviously not what the temple is for. But but this is revealed to be all the more scandalous when we learn what ought to have been stored in this room. In order to give this chamber to Tobiah, Eliashib actually had to remove the grain offering and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of grain and wine and oil. In other words, Eliashib has removed everything necessary for the proper worship of God, and he has permitted Nehemiah's arch enemy to move into the temple and use it as a man cave. So, verse 8, Nehemiah was very angry, and he threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then he gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and he brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Okay, this ought to sound familiar. Nehemiah is overturning tables in the temple. Jesus did something very similar in our gospel reading today. John chapter 2. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So today... In chapter 13, we're going to see Nehemiah repeatedly acting out of anger. But I think we should be slow to conclude that Nehemiah is acting sinfully. After all, Jesus made a whip. Jesus did not come to the earth to have a polite discussion. He came to clean house. He came to announce that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he came to reveal his own identity as the king of that kingdom. In other words, he came with authority. He came with a soft word for the poor and downtrodden, but he came with a hard word for the rebellious and prideful, for the Tobias and Eliashibs of the world. And so let's, let's try our best to give Nehemiah the benefit of the doubt. Verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had, e- had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? 
The Levites have returned to their fields, meaning there is no one keeping the temple running. No sacrifices, no tithes, no music. But of course, Nehemiah does not blame the Levites. He recognizes that they have not been supported. Back in chapter 10, the people promised to support the Levites, and they have now broken that promise. All that ought to have been for the Levites has been taken out of the temple to make space for Tobiah's man cave. And so the Levites return to their fields because they need to feed their families. And as a result, there is no one tending to the proper worship of God. So the people have broken their third promise. They have neglected the house of God. They have not provided everything necessary for the proper worship of God. And now the people are going to break their second promise. They profane the Sabbath. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. In verse 16. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. So, Nehemiah sees all of these things, and he issues a warning. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. The people were at risk of losing everything they had regained by the grace of God. Jeremiah 17 If you do not keep the Sabbath day holy, God speaking, I will kindle a fire in the gates of Jerusalem, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and shall not be quenched. Clearly, God was serious about the Sabbath. You see, in the eyes of God, working on the Sabbath was was not simply an act of disobedience. It's It's also an issue of justice. God is a kind master, and and he desires to bless us. He treats us with dignity. He does not treat us like beasts of burden. And so it really grieves him and angers him and moves him to action when people get used and dehumanized for an extra buck. The Sabbath is an issue of justice, and so Nehemiah comes and he cleans up that mess too. And then in verse 23, Nehemiah learns that the people have also broken their first promise. They have neglected the house of God, they have profaned the Sabbath, and they have intermarried with non-Jews. Verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, I said this a few weeks ago, but it's worth saying again. This prohibition against intermarriage was not racist. This has nothing to do with ethnicity and everything to do with who we worship. Look again at verse 23. Nehemiah specifically mentions the women of Moab. Who do we know from Moab? Somebody. All right, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman. And so we know that the Bible is not simply prejudiced 
because Ruth was a Moabite woman who married a Jewish man. And as it turned out, Ruth was the great-grandmother of King David and one of the ancestors of Jesus himself. The difference was that Ruth, although she was from Moab, converted to the worship of Yahweh. And so again, this has nothing to do with ethnicity and everything to do with who we worship. But let's, uh, let's take a look at Nehemiah's honestly troubling response to all of this in verse 25. When he sees that the men have intermarried with pagan women, he confronts them and curses them and beats some of them and pulls out their hair. Yikes. Two things worth mentioning briefly. Number one, we have to remember what the people were putting in jeopardy. Not that long ago, Jerusalem was destroyed and the people were sent into exile for these very same sins. And number two, in this culture, having your hair removed was not only a shameful thing, it was, it, it was a way to symbolize cutting off impurity and returning to a state of purity. To have your hair removed symbolized a fresh start. So, there's actually a symbolic reason why Nehemiah would have their hair removed. It was a show of penitence before God. But regardless, from the perspective of modern people, Nehemiah is acting like a crazy person, right? It, it's, it's only a matter of time until someone starts a podcast about Nehemiah. But the, the reference to pulling hair becomes very interesting when we, re, when we remember that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. Back in Ezra chapter 9, Ezra learns that the people have intermarried with pagan women. And how does he respond? Ezra chapter 9, he responds by tearing out his own hair. So both Ezra and Nehemiah learn that people have intermarried with pagan women, but Ezra pulls out his own hair while Nehemiah pulls out the hair of the offenders. Why the difference? Well, put simply, Ezra is a priest and Nehemiah is a governor. As a priest, Ezra takes sin upon himself. As a governor, Nehemiah bears the sword against sin. So, I certainly understand that, that verse 25 is offensive to us, and I, I agree. Um, but as I said earlier, I think we should be slow to conclude that Nehemiah is acting sinfully. Nehemiah was not your local church pastor. Nehemiah was the government. And so we, we may not like this form of punishment, but we have to acknowledge Nehemiah's right to punish. He had the authority to punish. And Nehemiah certainly didn't think he had acted sinfully because in verse 31, as he does three times throughout this chapter, he prays to God and asks God to remember everything that he does in chapter 13. God, remember that. Remember when I pulled out those people's, those people's hair. Nevertheless, the book of Nehemiah ends on a very strange note. This is definitely not a happily ever after story. Earlier, we read from Revelation 21. The book of Revelation concludes with a glorious image 
of the city of God in a perpetual state of faithfulness and purity and feasting and joy. That's not what we have here. In the book of Nehemiah, it concludes with the city of God once again falling into unfaithfulness. And the main difference between Nehemiah and Revelation is Jesus. Throughout our time in this book, we have seen that Nehemiah is a godly leader whose whose ministry in many ways faithfully foreshadows the ministry of Christ. Consider, Consider all the ways that Nehemiah is like Jesus, okay? Nehemiah left a place of prominence for the good of God's people. Nehemiah wept and fasted over the state of Jerusalem. Nehemiah demonstrated a life of deep prayer and communion. He cared for the poor. He faced opposition and political conspiracies. He was betrayed. He courageously stood before the powerful men of his day. He reconstituted the people of God. He taught them to obey the law. He demonstrated the priority of joy and feasting. He called the people to repent. He renewed the covenant. He cleansed the temple. And he sacrificed personally for the purity of God's people. All of these things foreshadow the ministry of Christ. But even so, by the time we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah, we are faced with the insufficiency of Nehemiah's leadership. Nehemiah ultimately falls short. There is nothing he can do to keep this city pure. We need a greater Nehemiah. God's people need a greater Nehemiah. This book leaves us aching for a greater fulfillment to come. It's like the season of Advent. Nehemiah leaves us longing for Christmas morning, a better king. We need a more effective leader. We need a more perfect advocate. We need a righteous judge. We need a faithful high priest and a self-sacrificing king. And if we're going to remain faithful to the covenant, if this city is going to stay pure, we need new hearts. We need to be forgiven and cleansed. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, all of us. Jesus is all this and more. Jesus gives us all this and more. And so give to him your love and loyalty this morning and every morning. Join him in the building of a new Jerusalem. He is the Nehemiah to come. He is the greater Nehemiah. He will strengthen your hands for the work, and he is with you always, even to the end of the age. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are righteous and just. You are loving. You are good. We look to you. We look to your hand, God, for every blessing. We look to you for all that is good in this life. Jesus, you are the humble leader we are all longing for. Please lead us. Holy Spirit, fill us and empower us and purify us and bring us success as the people of God. Build up the city of God through us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.